Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the 360th show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Julie Reed, Associate Professor of History at Penn State University, who has taken the time to talk about cave markings, Cherokee life in the years before Indian removal. The history buff for today's show is Ed Broders. The uh, show's theme song is Kayla's theme, written by and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel, our producer and engineer, is, as always, Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of our show called Farouk Dinarin, and today we're going to be talking about cave markings, Cherokee life in the years before Indian removal with Dr. Julie Reed, Associate Professor of History at Penn State University. Julie, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Julie, can you give us an overview of the state of Native Americans in the Southeast in particular at the founding of the United States, just so we have some clue? Well, so I, I would say, particularly in the Native South, there there has already been, at this point, hundreds of years of engagement with a variety of colonial powers, the Spanish, the British, the French, depending on regionally where they're located. Um, trade has been established um, throughout the 18th century. We've seen the kind of rise and fall of a, of a a flourishing and then um, collapse of the deerskin trade, as well as um, an Indian slave trade, which had a, a major impact on Native communities that, that caused a lot of political realignments and um, caused a, 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 a wide array of, of chaos throughout the region that both Indians participated in as slave traders and were also victimized by. Um, and that also led to um, power uh, realigning in a whole variety of ways. In particular, um, by the time of the American Revolution, um, many tribes had very different relationships with both American settlers, but also um, British authorities. And the proclamation of 1763 um, for the Cherokees in particular, who is the group that I um, am most um, intimate with, um, they decided to, to that this a proclamation of 1763 was in their best interest. It was a boundary line that, that protected and defended um, part of their homelands and homelands that had been um, encroached upon. And so it's, it shouldn't surprise us that during the American Revolution, Cherokees decided to side with the British uh, against American settlers. And this had profound consequences for Cherokee people. Um, it was pretty, it was a pretty devastating moment because the Carolinas, kind of, um, a, along with um, Tennesseans, kind of came together and, and fundamentally um, destroyed towns, um, you know, all out destruction. And so it left, um, Cherokee people in a, a, a pretty difficult place at the close of the American Revolution. It's also worth noting um, that a group of Cherokees who um, didn't sue for peace um, continued to fight. They were known as the Chickamaugas, and they kind of moved themselves um, further south 
um, into areas in northern Alabama that had historically been more creek areas of and creek communities. And they did this both as a defensive posture, but also um, they did it to continue having a, an ability to fight and to resist American encroachment. Um, and so there is, there is a period in which Cherokees have, have suffered severe population losses over the course of the 18th century, not only from warfare, not only from disease, but, but of course also this devastation at the time of the American Revolution as well. Okay, um, Julie, you have individuals in our nation that really don't comprehend uh, the vastness or the deep history that the Cherokee tribe have, as in when most Americans would think they were just, I hate to say it, started off in Oklahoma, there in Oklahoma, which obviously wasn't the case. Could you do give our listeners kind of um, an idea how, um, modern the Cherokee uh, community was. I mean, they, if I recall, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, after the American Revolution, or maybe beforehand, went out of their way to try and what we would consider in a Western European perspective, modernize their culture. Is this true? Sure. I mean, it, it, there's there's a, an, art, an anthropologist who describes what Cherokees do as Cherokees changing so that they can stay the same. And I, I find that a useful way of thinking about a lot of the, the, the changes that Cherokees undertook. Um, you know, we, we have to kind of put this in context of, of throughout, obviously, the, the changes that I've just described over the course of the 18th century. Um, kind of force Cherokees to think about how to organize their communities in, in different ways. And so particularly at the tail end of the 18th century, Cherokees were increasingly becoming centralized um, and relying far less on kind of town autonomy and increasingly relying on a core set of chiefs to come to um, the negotiating tables with um, American leaders. And this, this speeds up, um, particularly in the aftermath of the American Revolution, but it also happens at a time when um, the young U.S. government um, launches what's known as the civilization policy, and, and, and often this is seen as a, an assimilative policy that um, really wants to rework Cherokee society in um, the, the image of U.S. kind of middle-class values. And, and Cherokees actually signed on to some of these changes that um, and some of them didn't seem like a big leap. So, for instance, it, the civilization policy encouraged um, Cherokee people to farm. Well, Cherokee women had been farming for millennia. So this wasn't a big ask. Um, it encouraged Cherokee people to pursue education. And actually, Cherokees were very open to education. Um, we can debate whether they liked the religion that came with it, but they were open to um English language education in particular that enabled them to better negotiate their lives moving forward. Um, many Cherokees, and, and this, of course, has had repercussions through the present day, but many elite Cherokee men in particular were eager to adopt plantation slavery, which within a Southern context was um, what the upper echelon of Southern society did. And so um, in terms of the most civilized Southerners, um, owning human beings was a part of that, and, and Cherokees didn't um, avoid doing that. They, they did adopt plant, plantation slavery. Um, added to that, they were open to a lot of um, 
variety in terms of missionaries. So the Cherokees had a, a whole slew of different um, denominations in the midst. The, the earliest to arrive were the Moravians by 1800. Um, the ABCSM, which was a conglomerate of groups, but the Presbyterians also involved there, um, arrived pretty quickly thereafter. The Methodists are, are come into the nation by the 1820s. The, the Baptists are there as well. And so there are at least a portion of Cherokee society um, thinking about Christianity and thinking about conversion to Christianity. So there, there are at least Cherokee people amenable to a lot of the changes that are, that are being offered through the civilization policy. And, um, and that doesn't necessarily mean a wholesale of adoption of all of those offerings, but it means that people were open to um, and receptive to some of the things that they felt like could um, aid them moving forward as a, as a Native nation. Um, Julie, so what, what piqued my interest in, in this particular topic was I, I read an article um, that talked about cave markings um, uh, by Cherokee that, that was a surprise. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, you know, what that, uh, what, what that was and what it was being used for um, and where it was and all of those kinds of things? Sure, sure. So, um yeah, I mean, I would say the cave was a surprise to me, too. <laughs> so I, I join you in your surprise. Um, Where the I cave, if I may ask? Pardon? Where are the caves location, if I may ask? So the, there's a couple of caves that we have been into, and they tend to, at least the a couple that we have documented writing in, are in the convergence where Alabama, Tennessee, and um, Georgia kind of come together in that corner. So it is these kind of lower town, Chickamauga towns that come out of um, the American Revolution for Cherokees. So one of the caves, um, Manitou, is in northern Alabama, um, which is what the subject of most of the articles have been, have been on. Um, and th this, this cave in particular uh, has an unusual history that I'll, I'll speak to in a minute. But in terms of where this is situated, right? That the, these caves are exist in this area that has undergone um, a lot of change, and Cherokee people again are kind of debating these new offerings of um, of things like Christianity and English language education and new um, way, new economies. And one of the one of the innovations of this period is uh, a man named Sequoia who was not. Uh, literate in English, she was not an English speaker, um, sets out to create a written language based on Cherokee. And this innovation is kind of both, both completely conforms to the civilization policy and on the other hand, completely pushes back against it, that the civilization policy wanted Cherokees to adopt English language. And of course, Sequoia says, oh, we can adopt language. We can adopt our own language in a written form. <laughs> So he's, right. he's, we, we, don't, we don't know how long he spent working on this. There's a number of kind of stories. We suspect it was a while. We suspect it probably was a decade-long project at least um, where he um, it went through a number of iterations and finally came up with a, sim a system that mapped to each of the sounds that is, um, that is articulated in the Cherokee language, and he created a, a syllable to match those sounds. Um, and he does this 
we know it's circulating by 1821. He's demonstrated its efficacy with the help of his daughter, who was one of his first students and arguably a helper in all of this. Um, he's demonstrated its efficacy by 1825 to the Cherokee National Council. And it's disseminated pretty quickly. I mean, it, it, the efficiency with which this written language um, gets spread is pretty remarkable. That it, the, the beauty of it was that if you were a speaker and you could essentially memorize these 85 syllables um, and memorize how to write them, that somebody could learn the, lang learn the written language within several days. And so wow. you have widespread literacy pretty quickly. I mean, that, that's at rates that are that exceed some of their white counterparts all around them. So it's a pretty remarkable um, invention. Um, and, and what it gets used for is a whole variety of purposes. The one that we most often talk about, and then I'm going to kind of transition to the caves, the one that's most widely known, if you know anything about how the, the syllabary gets used, is that the Cherokee Nation... Um, be begins operating its own press and its own bilingual newspaper in 1828 called the, the, the Cherokee Phoenix. And later it changes its name to the Cherokee Phoenix and Indians Advocate. And, and so it becomes a national tool for resisting removal. Uh, what, we, what we don't often think about is how, how are Cherokee people using the language? What are they doing with it? You know, beyond publishing a press, like how are everyday people, if the literacy is so widespread, what are people doing with it? And so what this case we, tells us is that, yeah. Okay. Uh, we, can we talk about that definitely in the next segment? Uh, we definitely okay. have a lot more to talk about, but so please stay tuned for our segment. This is ROI KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. A 88.5 FM, the radio station with the most diversity in the Quad City region. Jazz, blues, R&B, hip-hop, Spanish and Hispanic programming, gospel, new rock, oldies, news, and shows addressing local community issues, and the world's best in entertainment and news from Public Radio International. Here's something different on KALA 88.5 FM, the most diverse radio station in the Quad City region. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the second segment of our show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today's show is Dr. Julie Reed, Associate Professor of History at Penn State University, and we're talking about cave markings, Cherokee life in the years before Indian removal. Our history buff is Ed Broders. Ed, you get the first question. Thank you, John. Um, Julie, um, in the earlier part of the show, you were just about to tell us about the cave markings. And so um, if you could do that uh, for our listeners uh, and fill us in a little bit, are we talking about pictures are we talking about um, something like, you know, the development of the language being posted on cave walls? And how old are these markings? So th these these markings kind of we have three kinds of sets or three parts.
parts of the writing within um, Manitou Cave in particular, that, that one piece of writing that we see in there is just single syllables, which not really sure what's going on with that. Is it people practicing use of the syllabary? Is it, um, is it potentially songs? Is it that, that there's some quality to exactly what's going on with these kind of single syllables when you're walking through um, passageways in the cave? Then we have um, actual narrative. So on one of the walls kind of embedded under other historic graffiti, we have a narrative passage that's actually dated to um, 1829. So it, it's attached to a date. It's got somebody writing about an event, and they sign their name to it. So it, it's, a, it, it's a document written on a cave wall, for gosh sakes. And so, um, and then we have another piece of writing that's actually on the ceiling of the cave, which is doing something different than what the narrative on the wall is doing and what these syllables along the cave walls seem to be doing. So there are kind of three different ways that people are using the syllabary in the cave that are that are unique and interesting and and different and suggest also that different people, because this is not all the same hand, different people are using the syllabary for different purposes. Okay. Well, so I, we want to get back to, to the use for for maybe education or how the education system is developing. But I, the archaeologist in me, or anthropologist, wants to know, how did we stumble onto these, to these caves? Obviously, they they weren't continuously used after, or I, I'm assuming they weren't removed after, weren't used after the removal. Um, so so how did we kind of discover our these back again? Was it by accident? Did somebody remember something or have a story about things being done? How'd that work? Yeah, yeah. So it actually happened that um, Marion Smith and. Um, Alan Kressler, who who are kind of a pair, who often go out looking in caves, and, and Marion Smith kind of focuses his interest on kind of a historic graffiti, so looking at names that have been carved in, and then digging into documents to find out well who who were those people, why were they here, um, and so they're they're cavers, they're um, people who think deeply about local histories, and and so these two guys go in and see what appears to be um, syllabary. And it, it sat for a while in some ways. It was kind of kind of hidden in plain sight, at least one of the panels, because it, it literally is buried under lots of other graffiti. So they had alerted um, some folks at, at University of Tennessee to the existence of potential syllabary. And it wasn't until the, the cave was going through a, a sale and some cavers, offered to clean up the graffiti that there became an urgency to getting in there and seeing actually, <laughs> actually what was there. So in went some archeologists and, and the cavers again, and we um, brought a team of people over time to kind of take a look at this and verify, is this really syllabary we're looking at? And, um, and it is, and it's, again, at least one section is kind of hidden in plain sight under what appears to be this wall that people have been graffitiing on for quite a while. Um, other sections are, are not tampered with in the same way. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting. We also know these caves are 
They're much older. You know, they're obviously a part of this larger Mississippian world that existed before um, Europeans ever arrived here. And so we we do know that there are um, old river cane torches that are dated to a much, much older period. So we know people have been going into these caves for a very long time. Um, And so it's an interesting situation where... Um, yeah, to have graffiti kind of hit hiding something that's kind of also right there. Um, yeah, and and then of course once you start looking, what else is there, right? If you if you're not keyed in to to even thinking about Silberberry being there, you're not even looking for it. Okay. Well, and and just to, to follow up just for a minute, it had to have been exciting. I mean, you know, it kind of comes out of the the, the woodwork. How uh, how excited were you to be involved or part of the process in some way uh, or, or getting this information that, that you did, didn't know was there before? Well, I mean, it's, for me, it was exciting on a whole host of levels in that, um, yeah, I work largely with paper documents. <laughs> I think that, wow. that that's what I do all day. I spend time in the archives, right? And so right. there's a there's a switch that has to go on in your head to say like, I need, I need to go to an archive that's in a cave. Like how cool is that? <laughs> right. And I, and I suspect, I mean, I, I, I was asked like, are you, cause some people are terrified of caves and I'm like, I'm going, but take me, take me in. Um, and so, um, you know, there's a, a certain, I'm, you know, in addition to being a professor of Cherokee history, I'm also a Cherokee Nation citizen. And so there's a way in which you going into those spaces for the first time, and I have done some spelunking, but there's a way in which when you're going into the cave to kind of think through Cherokee presence there and Cherokee writing and, a, and an archive that's been created, that suddenly it came kind of, you're suddenly living with understanding the cosmology of your ancestors. Like there's an otherworldliness to caves. There, there's a way in which, you know, you're existing in darkness in some spaces. And these are, you know, at least the Manitou cave is not an easy cave to navigate. I mean, there, I got muddy, you know, I mean, I had to do, I, I worried about some, some leaps I needed to make. Um, and so there's a way in, yeah, there, there's just a way in which you have to kind of think about, so this is what the world of my ancestors included and the ways that they're conceptualizing the world and, and thinking through kind of older cosmological traditions that existed to understand and, and think through the context of writing in a cave, both within a historic period, but also that links people to a much longer um, relationship to these spaces that both, I mean, that's what I think is so exciting and so mind-blowing about all this is historians kind of look for change over time, right? We're constantly thinking about chronologies. And this is one of those places where what's happening in that cave stretches back much, much deeper in time, but is also a technology that's going to move Cherokee people into the future. And so it's this explosion of both past coming together with present and linking all of these 
these moments together that is just mind blowing. And I, and I still grapple with like, how do we read a document in a cave and, and the inability to read some parts of it? What does it mean to have to read a ceiling of a cave that's meant to be read by the people who are above that cave, the, the, the entities that are above that cave, the, 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 the audience is not me standing in the cave looking, looking up. It's the audience in, in the cosmos looking down to read what's written. Like that's, that's a different way of conceptualizing space and conceptualizing archives and, and thinking through um, what I do every day. <laughs> I mean, it, it's really still something I'm, excited about and and it also creates major problems for me in terms of right uh, this is my last, this is my last question for you so now that you you have again this incredible primary source that uh, value is just unimaginable especially for someone i'm a modern historian um how did you what were your first steps in trying to approach it uh i mean again you're part of the Cherokee Nation, so what exactly were the steps that you had to say, okay, we've got to look at it for its real value? What were your first steps? So I think that, I mean, there is a, you know, there are three um, Cherokee folks on this team. Tom Belt, who is United Gadua Band, um, Bo Carroll, who's the first author on our article, um, our articles that came out, who is, an, is Eastern Band Cher- Cherokee, and then myself, who are Cherokee Nation. So we had this kind of um, recogni- all three of us representing each of the federally recognized tribes. And at the same time, there's what's in these caves is obviously um, of extreme importance to our political communities, right? But that what's also in these caves is of extreme importance to our, um, our spiritual communities. And so I know that, that Bo in particular did a lot of work um, thinking through um, how public some of this needed to be, you know, so what do we do and, and how do we move forward as scholars that, that thinking through kind of a, a respectful approach to these clearly spiritual spaces. And so I, I know that though did work thinking through like what do elders have to say about this? What do our um, ceremonial leaders think about all of this? Um, but then we also have had to reach out to the relevant um, entities within our tribal government. So um, Eastern Band's Historic Preservation Office has been involved with us throughout. Um, we, Cherokee Nation obviously is a little more um, physically distant, but, but they have been aware of, of this cave. And so um, Eastern Band has kind of taken the lead just be, in part because regionally they're closer. Um, and, and so thinking through how do we make sure that the, that the national, our national governments are involved in this process as well, so that we're mindful of the concerns that they may have. As a historian, you know, I had to do kind of something different in that, okay, so what are now the, what are the, the documents I'm always dealing with that can kind of add context to this place and the people that are living there? So I did this kind of traditional approach, too, of like, I got to find all the documents that reference Willstown. I need to know who's here. I need to know when they're here. I need to know the history of this community. Um, and, and so I think all of us kind of took that approach as well. Like, okay, now let's, let's figure out the context.
the larger context um, to these spaces um, within the moment that they're being created, right? And so I, I think there were kind of two two ways that we had to approach this. One, as as citizens of our communities, um, cognizant of, of those responsibilities, but also our responsibilities as scholars to kind of contextualize these spaces. All right. We have about a minute and a half, two minutes left. So you always, uh, we always give our guests the last word on the show. So Julie, why do you think knowing about Native American history in general and this particular aspect of the cave drawings and, and uh, the Cherokee Nation is relevant in today's world? Well, you know, I mean, it, it's easy. Cherokees are, have been in the news recently, and I think it's easy to overlook the ways that these questions are constantly um, coming up for us, that, you know, the treaties that kind of came out of this removal period, this moment that people are struggling through and, and attempting to contextualize in these caves and articulate, um, that treaty had a the removal treaty of 1835 that bore out over this period had had the, the the elements in it for us to have a delegate to congress which is being invoked right now right so cherokee nation has been pushing for this delegate that comes out of these treaties over this exact period that we're talking about um and, and as they're grappling intellectually with this moment that we're still living with the outcomes and the forethought of our of our leaders and communities that were that were grappling with these issues hundreds of years ago, and here we are still kind of thinking through. Well, what does it mean to have a delegate to Congress that our ancestors fought through in this very moment that they were under um, under siege in some ways? So this stuff comes up constantly, and so I think we have to pay attention to the ways in which. Um, the history, history is not passed for Native nations who are still thinking through um, land losses and treaty rights um, that are very much alive and well today. And one need look, look no further than the Cherokee delegate situation for an example. Okay. We will come back and we will wrap, the, wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, Sam Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. This program, the award-winning Relevant or Irrelevant, is heard Friday evenings at 9.30 p.m. Central Time on KALA HD2 or 106.1 FM in the Quad City area. You can listen over the air or anywhere via TuneIn.com. To hear this program and many other archived editions at any time, visit SoundCloud.com. Search for username KALA Radio. There you'll find Relevant or Irrelevant and many other productions produced at the St. Ambrose University Communications Center. This concludes our 360th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapp Zappinal. My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Julie Reed, Associate Professor of History at Penn State University, who talked with us about cave markings, Cherokee life in the years before Indian removal. The history buff for today's show is Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University 
or K-A-L-A, and we would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Thank you.